and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. My guest this week, uh, he and I have grown very close because there's such a, a special quality about my guest. We met on the Marketing Academy, where I give my time pro bono to help people who have a very high quality, normally around CMO level, uh, well capable of becoming CEOs. And my guest is one of those special people who I'm looking forward to chatting to. Without further ado, would you introduce yourself? Thank you, Jonathan. That's very kind words for you to say. So my name is Chris Barron. I'm uh, working at Unilever, which uh, for anyone who, who doesn't recognize the name, is uh, one of the world leading companies in the production of, of consumer goods from food products to personal care products to laundry products and i am lucky enough to be the general manager for personal care for the uk and ireland personal care is our kind of description for deodorants uh, things which clean your body and also things which clean your teeth uh, so it's a fantastic business as i hope we'll be able to touch on over the next few minutes um, so yeah, very much enjoying that. And I've been at Unilever 17 years. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, let's talk about it straight away. I was, um, reminded about one of Marcus Aurelius, the, um, the, the ultimate stoic talking about how people irritated him, particularly a colleague who had the odor of a smelly goat. And if only in those days he had dove or some deodorant, he would be in a much better place. And also how it's one of those things with, um, my clients, where sometimes their personal body odor, or they might have very bad um, halitosis, and um, they people aren't aware of it, or they are aware of it, but they go, "Can somebody say something to them?" They almost like leave it for you as the coach to say something. Now, on a number of occasions where people have had serious problems, I have actually said, "Are you aware of this?" Uh, and what are you going to do about it? Are you happy with it or whatever it might be? Because because people sometimes are just not aware of their impact on other people. I am reminded of the very silly wedding night joke where this couple marry online, and um, but they each have great secrets. And he has very, very smelly feet and she has incredibly bad breath, halitosis. And they decide that when they do meet for the first time, it's all going to be in the dark in the in the wedding bedroom. And uh, they each spend time, a lot of time in the bathroom getting ready. Uh, he sort of spraying his feet and she rinsing out her mouth. And then they hop into bed and she turns to him and she says, darling, I've got a secret to tell you. And this waft hits him straight in the face. And he goes, <laughs> he said, you don't need to tell me. I know. She said, you know? He said, yes, I know. You've eaten my socks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So maybe maybe we can get around that. But um, 
with the various products you have, and um, uh, we're big fans of Unilever products, particularly Dove. I think you've been doing some great work with Dove, particularly around this whole idea of real people uh, with real stories to tell rather than some scrawny supermodel who's eaten uh, tissue paper and orange juice to remain thin and skinny. And everybody goes, I just can't hope to even be like that. I don't relate to that kind of person. And and I think Dove has really worked very well on that. And that's clearly one of your key brands. You want to just tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Dove? Yeah, so Dove in 2004 started the uh, Dove self-esteem program. And we have many programs which go into schools, um, and we hope that by 2030, we will have helped a quarter of a billion, mainly girls, but young people, let's say, and women through our educational programs. And what we did last week was we built on that. So we've just launched a new campaign called Dove Cost of Beauty, uh, which is a short three minute film. We actually aired it on Friday night which shows um, the terrible impact that uh, negative experience of social media can have on young people's mental health, eating disorders, and so on. And what we're doing is through that campaign, we're inviting people to help join the movement to make social media a safer, more positive place for young people and for their mental health. Uh, and we're working with the Maudsley, who we've been able to uh, make a donation to. Um, so we will fund mental health facilities at their centre for children and young people. And, you know, that's really going to help protect the mental health uh, of some of the UK's most vulnerable young people. So really, as always on Dove, there are the campaigns that people see on the TV or online but there's always a brand action plan, a brand do, as we call it, which goes with it, where we take serious action to address uh, the topics that we raise. But uh, certainly as a father of two daughters, uh, working on Dove is, is really a fantastic thing. Yeah, well, uh, we'll, we'll have a, a chat some other time, Chris, but um, I would like uh, some of your team to get involved with our charity, which Lee has set up nine years ago. Um, she doesn't get paid for it. She just does it in her spare time. But she founded it because she was really concerned about violence against women and girls. And um, her own story is quite a harrowing one of, of what she uh, experienced. But she was determined that others wouldn't have to go through that. So uh, the Inspired Leadership Foundation really is helping those girls who've gone through violence against them, trafficking, mental health, the impact mm. of social media on on their health and also during the pandemic and even since living with their abusers in the same house but being in lockdown with them can you imagine how how grim that was and that we provide them with coaches and mentors to help them get them out of the difficult situation they're in not only just in this country where we do a lot of work but also in africa um in some of the slums of nairobi with the very poorest girls at 13 having babies but not being able to finish their own education and also was a Moya in South Africa where we were helping some of the Zulu families with microfinance and things. So it just might be that you have one or two of your um, leaders who want to actually help by way of mentoring or coaching or just giving their skills and experience to help a charity that's keen on 
doing something about not just recognizing, doing something about the violence against women and girls and giving them a chance to get out of the appalling situation we're in. Because we work very closely with DWP and the serious organized crime part of the home office, you know, the county lines and stuff. We had a big event with DWP at uh, Tottenham Hotspur, uh, uh, Tottenham Hotspur grounds to just try and have a covenant to do something about women. So we'll chat later about it, but it's clearly something that matters deeply to you. And uh, that's the one of the things that appeal to me in getting to know you is your very strong value system. Uh, but yet you've also had some good role models. And uh, you and I were talking about if you were to pick out two leaders who you found very inspiring, who would they be and what were their qualities? Yeah, so thank you, Jonathan. I think um, two leaders I'd pick out, both from the world of, of Unilever. Um, I think the first would be someone who's actually over the years very involved in all that work on, on Dove and a real sponsor and supporter, both of that and purposeful brand work, uh, which is Alan Jope, um, who retired as CEO of Unilever last week. And he was someone I got to know when he was the divisional president for beauty and personal care in, in Unilever a few years ago. Um, I always found Alan very inspiring, personable uh, leader, someone who looks after people, not just in terms of people's purpose, well-being, but really very, very hot on safety, people's safety, and also on the other side, sustainability and, and the purposeful work that the company was doing. But just one small anecdote, if I may, about Alan, mm. which I'm sure he wouldn't remember. But um, so in 2016, we were at a, a workshop together in New York. And my daughter was four, at the, maybe four and two at the time, my daughter's. Anyway, that morning, I got a call back from the UK. Alice, my four-year-old, had broken her arm. She'd fallen off the uh, playground thing at school. Actually, quite a nasty break. And obviously, in that moment, as your parent, you're like, oh, goodness me, what am I doing? How am I going to do? And Alan, I don't know how he heard about this, but he heard about it. He came straight up to me, checked that Alice was going to be OK. And then he just looked me in the eye and said, you need to be back at home. Go to the airport now and go straight home, please. Mm. And I just thought that is an example of values-based leadership. You just show up in the moment, do the right thing by the person. And actually, then the person never forgets. That so really wish Alan all the best in his uh, in his life after Unilever. Just just staying with with Alan, that reminded me of, of two examples of where things go wrong, or where they go right. One is when I was in the army and uh, I worked for a guy called Andrew Farker, uh, who was my commanding officer, and my wife was really suffering with postnatal and uh, problems with uh, having. We had two children just had the second one. She was really struggling and I needed to be back home. Uh, but I was on operational tour in South Omar uh, and I came to him. I was pretty close to tears actually and said, look, I'm really deeply concerned. I wouldn't raise this unless it was serious, but I think I need to be back there. And he sort of looked at me as if I was letting the side down and that, you know, come on, we've got a job to do here. You know, you know, really, Are you sure you need to go back? And and I just felt so down about the whole thing. I was, I was really pulled because I wanted to be there to look after my wife and Harriet and Brani. But at the same time, 
um, I was made to feel that I was deserting the ship and it was not good. It was not good. And they, he didn't handle it well. I went back and my, uh, my wife, Bridget, my first wife, um, she slept for about a, about a week most of the time because she was utterly exhausted and close to a close to just, just burnout. And it was the right thing to do. But then I think of another time later on when I was a managing director and, um, uh, again, Bryony, my other daughter, had been um, run over just slightly by a car, which had just gone over her foot, and it had it had caused a real injury to the foot. Uh, she was at a uh, schoolgirl in the Mount School in New York, and and as soon as I heard it, I just stopped the meeting I was in. So, guys, I know where I need to be, and it's not here. You you take over, be chair of the meeting. Um, I'm I'm leaving now, and I just left, got on the train, got back up to York, and helped out. But it, it is really important, as you say where Alan modeled what is right and Andrew Farker didn't model what was right. Uh, it was too much about him and what was supposed to be the greater cause, but actually you need everybody to be focused and on task. We weren't at war. It was operations. Yes, it was important, but no one's, no one's indispensable. Everybody can be replaced. And that's why you have a number two. That's why you have a second in command. And if you haven't got one in the organization you're in and you can't step out, you're at fault there. You, you, a lot of people try and make themselves indispensable. You can't, you know, you'll never get rid of me. So I'll make myself so valuable that no one can replace me. And then you get ill or you have something like that and you can't take time out. And, and no one, a, a lovely quote someone had the other day in 20 years time, nobody will remember that you worked late at night and you did emails over the weekend, but your children will. Yeah, I think that's very powerful, isn't it? And something yeah. that I, I try, uh, try to remember that one. Yeah. So thank you for that. Sorry that triggered a few thoughts for me um, in the moment. Let's uh, your second uh, inspiring leader, and and who who was it, and what qualities did you admire about them? Yeah. So my second inspiring leader was is uh, Sebastian Munden. Um, so I had the chance to work for Seb when he was the chair uh, of Unilever UK and Ireland, which is one of the larger operating companies in, in Unilever from 2017 until last year. First of all, I was just very grateful to him for the opportunity to serve on that Unilever UK board. We had some really big challenges that we had to go through as a team. And I mean, obviously the biggest one being the pandemic and all the things that came from that as we were responding and it's a lot, Unilever is a large employer in the UK. How did we respond to that? Um, but what I, I really uh, appreciated about Seb was that he has a fantastic ability to look at a problem diagnose it as a really great intellect, understand where are people coming from on a different given issue, and then be able to take a position and say, that's gonna be our position and that's where we're gonna go from. And I, something I really tried to, it takes quite a lot of work, probably comes more easily to some than others, um, but that's something I really work and I've worked on. And we, we spent quite a bit of time trying to tackle the plastics agenda as a as a board team um, and Seb was just brilliant on this so 
we took lots of quite difficult decisions to eliminate uh, a product where it was unrecyclable. We made investment choices to put post-consumer recycled materials into our bottles and so on, so that you avoid using virgin plastic. And we did lots of schemes in stores with different retailers where you can take your bottle in, refill it, then it would be a metal bottle and you take it back and all sorts of really innovative things, which were excellent. And uh, she's since leaving Unilever, Seb's now chairing RAP, which is the waste and resource action program which is a climate action ngo which also works quite a bit on plastics so really wish seb uh all the best for uh, this new life and uh role after unilever yeah well what, what what special people and uh it's those kind of examples to us that we always remember um which really takes me on nicely to a bit about your upbringing your story um, and, and the people that have helped you, Chris, become the leader that we experience today, you know, tell us a bit about it, your upbringing. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Hampton in Middlesex. My parents actually still live there in the same uh, home that I, that I grew up in. I grew up uh, with two younger brothers so the house was always full of energy and i think my my poor mother absolutely despaired of constantly finding her living room used as the late sort of royal rumble wrestling game again or like things being mm. things were always getting broken mysteriously in our house usually due to this sort of uh, brawling um so a very uh, a very loving household um fantastic values and a and a really big extended family so i have lots of wonderful aunts and uncles and cousins who we're really close to but i'm particularly close with my brothers stuart and giles and as we've got older we've found that we're really able to support each other uh, on lots of different uh, topics um but of course the latter part of my life has been very very different so i'm blessed with having two daughters I've been married to my wife, Lizzie, for uh, 15 years now. And we have Alice, who's uh, 11, and Lottie, who's nine. And I've learned so much in being uh, a dad and a dad uh, to two uh, young girls who are turning into young women very, very quickly. And that's been my absolute pleasure of the last uh, number of years. Mm, well, it, I mean, two girls is very special. and. Uh... I have two girls and uh, I've got a, a stepdaughter as well. Now I've inherited a stepdaughter and a stepson, but having two girls and they're now at the stage uh, in three weeks time, Harriet, who's now 30 is getting married. And in early September, Bryony, who's 29 gets married. So very special times. So I've been doing my father, the bride bit. And it's, it's funny, you know, you, you think, ah, oh, you know, I do speeches all the time. But when it's your own daughters, it's really hard. You almost like feel like you've begun all over again. And you think, what do I say? And how do I say the right thing? There's so much to say. How do you, how do you make it interesting or amusing or just, but then I'm just going to go and be me. It'll be whatever it is. Um, I just told her I was just going to make it up on the hoof just in the moment. Daddy, you can't do that. I said, no, no I am Jim. I will, I will give it some thoughts. Um, no, lovely, lovely um, story. We have some highlights in our lives and we have some, some dark times. Um, if you were to pick 
a difficult time in your life, work or whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be massively dramatic, but just what did you learn from it, from that difficult moment and, and turning the situation around, resolving it? Yeah, so uh, I, th- I thought quite a bit about about this when we were talking about the uh, podcast before. And um, I think definitely the saddest thing that we've faced in our family, and as I say, a very close family, has been the decline of my father, Michael, uh, over the last number of years. So he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's seven or eight years ago. I'm sorry. And he's very happy to recognize us and he's still physically active. But the sad part and slightly unusual part of his diagnosis is that he has aphasia. So he's really lost effectively the power of speech and very, very frustrating for him. You can see trying to get the words out, but they won't come. Um, And now becoming increasingly confused around people and events and it is incredibly difficult Mm. Um, and I see how difficult it is uh, really for my mum as much as we try to help Um, you know she is the prime carer for him and um, you know I can only admire all the love and support that she she brings to him that's my, my mother Monica but one thing I've learned and I think there is a kind of serious message in this is that when they first started to notice the signs, maybe seven or eight years ago, um, my mum was very proactive in going to investigate drug trials and anything which could be done. And we've since found out that my dad was on the drugs. He wasn't put on uh, a placebo. And that really squares with our experience because I reckon for about four or five years, the decline really halted and we had we had a number of very happy times that 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 time bought us if you like uh gave us the opportunity for some holidays of family and things before things have sort of got to where they are now so i know it's a really um it's a really personal thing for people and very worrying i i can i know that if people are uh thinking about oh is, is something not quite right here But if you can get tested early uh, so that they can check for the relevant amyloid plaques or even if it's just cognitive testing, um, this is what can make the difference. And we read, I'm always heartened to read a new uh, um, story about Alzheimer's research and the new drugs that are coming on the market. But most of them seem to me to be predicated upon early diagnosis. So, yeah. That would be really what I've learned in the midst of, of really quite a sad uh, situation. Yeah, well, firstly, Chris, I'm sorry for your, your mum, Monica, and uh, for you, your brothers, and, and the wider family, because it becomes a family illness. Um, everybody, um, I say this with obviously with my late mother-in-law who had Alzheimer's before she died, and everybody gets af- affected by it. And... It is interesting that we we try more and more to have more and more drug trials and and things like that to sort of stop it in its tracks when it's quite well advanced or in the early stages of identification. But as as you and I know from the reading we've both done, and clearly with it in my family, I read a lot around the research in this and with a brother who's a surgeon, I got the latest research I could. And, and there's no doubt about it that our sleep is essential 
to us in, in catching it early in our lives so that we have a good foundation of deep and REM sleep. And uh, I just had a bit of a pan out before I came on this podcast with you. Um, I love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll even, if I'm in my old days when I was in an office, I used to just crawl under a desk somewhere, just put a blindfold on and uh, sleep for about 25 minutes. About 30 minutes is perfect time because it gave me the second part of the day, just a, just a whole new part of the day. But also we're trying to beat the the car wash effect of your brain building up plaque a bit like teeth through the amyloid, um, beta amyloid. And um, how if you get a full night's sleep of eight hours, that it's going to, the car wash or the cerebral fluid will flush out the plaques and the brain will be restored for the next day's worth of work. But if you think you're a macho man, like I used to think I was doing airborne training in my time in the army and how cool I was, you can sleep when you're dead. Um, it will happen earlier than you think. Um, and certainly Ronnie Reagan and um, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who both suffered from uh, Alzheimer's, prided themselves on getting by on four or five hours sleep. It was not good for them and um, was probably a, probably, they think, a contributing factor to their onset of Alzheimer's. So the research seems to be sleep, crucial. Let's get it early and get sufficient amounts of it uh, and with a consistent bedtime and wake time. And secondly, the foods that we eat. Um, they talk about it being um, type 3 diabetes now, Alzheimer's, that it, that it is uh, seriously affected by uh, ultra-high processed foods and by starches and by sugar, certainly large amounts of sugar. And um, I know that when you actually have a, a healthy diet, you can actually slow or reverse the impact of it. So I don't know what your thoughts are, any research that you've done on this topic. Yeah, actually, one of the big things that I'm a proponent on is, is on sleep. Um, and actually, I'd, I'd say that I've seen in the last five, six years, a massive change on this topic from the way senior leaders have talked about it in, in Unilever, uh, recommending the book called Why We Sleep. I'm afraid the name of the author. Matthew Walker. Matthew Walker. Matthew. I knew it was a Matthew. Matthew Walker. And really understanding how you sleep and also using your uh, Fitbit to track your sleep kind of religiously. I think sometimes I might become a bit too obsessed with it. But it is a game changer. And I, and I think actually now as leaders, there's much more conversation around, oh, have you... Have you had enough sleep? Especially, I also notice where people are young parents, or sorry, parents with young children, and maybe it's really difficult to get enough sleep. So one of the things that we do in the team here is we have Wellbeing Wednesdays, and you get two hours at lunch to, to do something that you want to do for your well-being. Now, lots of people like to go to the gym or go for a walk, but I made it really clear that a perfectly acceptable use of the time was to have a sleep because you know that's the one thing i absolutely agree with you about mapping and i think there was more research that came out in the last week or so about mapping that was very interesting just can give you the quick reset and um you know help with some of these uh long-term health issues so yeah mm. huge huge uh sleep uh proponent on better sleep oh there's no doubt about it and and we are lucky that we've got um my stepson and his wife and our grandchildren living with us at the moment for about a year. 
as they're moving from uh, the Midlands over to here to Grantham. And um, so we've got a one-year-old and two-year-old, which makes life very active with also two Cocker Spaniels in the house as well. It's a pretty full-on time. And um, they very kind of gone out for a walk during this recording. Otherwise, it would be chaos. <laughs> but but I do see my daughter-in-law when my, um, uh, when my stepson is away on police duty for four days at a time um, over in Birmingham that... Uh, She's shattered. She's on about four hours sleep a night. And little one wakes up three or four times. He's not sleeping very well. And she, she's just, poor thing, struggling, really struggling. She's an amazing mom, but there's no doubt about it. You just can't function. And I find, of course, if we get woken up too, I'm just, I'm just not on it. Um, and, and little things will just make me a little bit grumpy and a little bit irritable and small things with a bit of technology that's not working or something like, you know, the Lloyd's app doesn't work or something. You can't get it. And you just, oh, you know, wh why have you had that reaction? Normally you're just like super cool and just uh, don't let it get to you. So it is crucial. Um, thinking back to when you started out, when you were 16 to 18 years old, uh, what bit of advice would you give to the young Chris Barron that might be useful to people listening now so i this one was I, I i honestly i find relatively easy to answer jonathan because my advice to the young chris would just be just slow down a bit mate just just hold on a bit i was so almost so excited by life actually and the and the joie de vivre of well let's finish your a levels let's get to university let's get a job let's move into london let's you know and just wanted kind of to experience all of it but I, I wish i just had that one piece of advice of you know what why don't you just take a year and see how it goes travel um find some opportunity you know you'll you'll do it all in the end but just take your time take your time and, and i wish i'd had that uh, that piece of advice so. yeah I, I think that's so good chris i mean my mine was a sort of similar one it's just like i was very much sort of throwing myself into everything quite intense uh not that i'm not a little intense now but um just i think to take life a little easier and not take yourself so damn seriously because no one else is taking you so seriously. So why should you take yourself so seriously? I think those good bits of advice too. Great. Let's go around the inspiring leadership compass, the, uh, the eight elements. Um, we'll, we'll have a, a pick and mix of some of them, but um, moral quotient when, you know, you've got very strong values, uh, principles, upbringing, the way you were brought up in an organization like Unilever, which has very strong values and, aspires to live by those and when people like your bosses don't they call themselves out they haul themselves up and go sorry i did wrong and, and and we need to correct this um whether it be withdrawing a product or something like that that um that is is not uh is not suitable um but when you've uh let yourself or your values slip what have you done to rectify it so, look, I, th I think we all live day to day, and I genuinely believe this, that the vast majority, vast, vast majority of people in the world try to live uh, by the best moral values that they can day to day. I think that the challenge is that we constantly slip, and therefore it becomes very difficult sometimes to live up to the kind of values that, that you want to live by, because you're constantly in this sort of battle with yourself of like, have I really been the best I could be? So 
I'll give you an example. Um, I, I do get distracted easily. And I'm sure many people feel this of the pull of their mobile phone really at the worst moments and, and trying to avoid that. So I really um, pull myself up if I find that I'm becoming distracted, especially when I'm with Lizzie or with the girls, because that's precious time. And um, with so much time spent at work and on work things, actually to then squander any precious time that I get with them really annoys me and I get really annoyed with myself and say no we mustn't we mustn't do that so um I think it is in all these kind of little moments that you have with yourself of like could I have done that better could I have listened more could I have shown up more mm. uh, so so right it's something I'm constantly working on somebody described it to me when I was doing some work with the ASDA um CEO and board a while ago uh, they call it TNT tiny noticeable things. People see the tiny noticeable things. They are explosive, TNT. And that that actually it's back to that sort of policy of uh, in, in a neighborhood where the, where the windows are getting broken, that make sure that the windows don't get broken, they get repaired and that kind of stuff, because then the crime will exacerbate, people will break into the buildings and then the, so it goes on spiraling down. And I think it's so easy when we come home, having been working really hard at listening to people and being respectful and empathetic. And then you come home and you go, oh, I can relax now. I'm at home. And it was like, you sort of forget that you need to be more empathetic and actually more honest and present with people than you were at work. Because this, this is the, um, this is the, the sort of the relationships that really count. You'll move from job to job, but it really is not a good idea. I will tell you from personal experience to move from family to family. You just, you really need to get right first time. And um, so I, I do think making that extra effort and, and, and it is something I, I, I work hard at with my wife, Lee, to, to be present with her when we both can easily get distracted with our phones and, and be in the room, but not with the person, not, not, not on, on task. Um, the next one round is PQ. Um, what gives your life meaning and purpose, Chris? What, what, what is that? So uh, we talked a little bit about the family side, um, but just on the professional side of my life and the sort of professional purpose, the first part is I'm just so engaged in what I do. I love my job. I really love the, the people perspective. So I'm lucky enough to lead um, a great team here of really diverse people. And what's really interesting is that many of the people in the team, some of the people are in the first steps, the very first steps of their career. So it's the apprentices, the placement students, the uh, future leaders program that we have. And I just think if um, myself with the broader team, if we can make that first experience of the world of work a positive, kind one, those values surely have to pay forward. And um, we actually had last week something I absolutely love doing, which is our quarterly awards. So the team will vote for each other on a number of different awards. And most of them aren't for business things. They're for things like Culture Champion or Unsung Hero. And then we go out, have a big party, and I give out all the awards and nominations. And, you know, the look in someone's eyes when maybe they've only been working for a few months and it's their first thing 
and they've been recognized in front of their peers and that is just magic that mm. so yeah that, that's really really yeah really excellent to have that opportunity no it, it is it's a lovely one and it's it's also very good for people's uh self-esteem and their mental health which takes me nicely to hq health quotient the third of the eight components of what makes inspiring leaders and high-performing teams you know you're um very serious about looking after your own health and well-being and the health and well-being of the people around you what would be a tip you'd you'd give to people on those two areas personally what works for you physically and mentally and what you do you mentioned already about the two hour uh wednesday uh session that you have um but uh what, what else do you do to make it a psychologically safe and a and an environment where people want to give of their best their discretionary life energy as it's called yeah i mean there's quite a lot there so just to to unpack a little bit i think around the well-being wednesdays and the health of the team and their well-being you know i really try to role model that to put that first and to be very clear about things like if you're ill honestly please don't come to the office actually um, take your time get better um, and also to role model flexibility uh, whether that's in you know how I work and having sometimes time to pick the girls up from school and certainly to try to drop them in the, in the morning um, so really trying to show flexibility at the heart of how I work and the importance of well-being um, and for people to take the time to look after themselves it's it's just so important yeah. Um, and then for myself, um, I, I actually love going to the gym. I absolutely love it. I would probably go six, seven days a week if I could. Unfortunately, life gets in the way. So there's another one where I kind of constantly fail versus my expectations and, and my trainers. Um, but try to push myself three times a week. I think if I get there twice at weekends and once in the week, I'm doing well. And I find specifically that, first of all, having a bit of time when you're just lost in the moment, listening to music on an exercise machine, whatever it is, really good for your mental health. But also when you're doing weight training, counting things, lifting things, this is also, I find at least, very helpful and quite, quite calming. Um, so that to me is the one thing which... Uh, yeah, I, I really, really get quite stressed if I don't look after my, my, my health in those ways. Yeah, it's a good point. And we, uh, in our own discussions, because um, uh, if I haven't mentioned it on the podcast, I'm very lucky that I'm able to be your coach. And um, we discuss many things. In fact, I find you coaching me just as much as I'm coaching you. So it, it is a, it is a, a fair partnership. Um, and we were both talking about wearable technology. I wear this Aura ring and you've got various devices. I've also got the Apple Watch. And I've had whoop straps and all sorts of things and Fitbits in the past. Um, as you alluded to, we've got to be careful. We can get over-obsessed, particularly blokes. I think they love their data. You know, even young boys with the, the speed of a dinosaur and its weight and things like this. You know, we get caught up in in the thick of thin things as someone once said and you can almost overstress about the fact you haven't had enough sleep my god i've just not had enough sleep and therefore i've got to get more sleep i must get more sleep and so of course then then it means that you don't sleep as well so it is a fine balance don't you think 
Yeah, I think it can become sort of counterintuitive, counter-cyclical, however you want to say it, where you end up getting more stressed about it and it's it's actually not helping. But generally, I find with as long as you take it with a bit of a pinch of salt, actually all this is just helping us to do more on our health and just to have a great believer in nudges. And it just gives you the nudge to say, actually, you're going to you know, go to the gym this evening or at this point. And just that nudge sometimes is enough to kind of get back on the horse and, and go again. So. Yeah. And um, with a bit of a health concern I have at the moment of my liver, there's it's very interesting with the amount of data that can be accumulated, but you then tend to go and see different specialists in the health system. But this is where I think AI is going to be so very interesting. If you feed into the AI machine, all the different data on your bloods and MRIs and CT scans, it actually can pretty quickly work it out. And now they are just trialing out a blood test, which can can work out 50 different types of cancer from your blood, early identification of it before it becomes too late. And so I'm very hopeful of the way that the use of AI and data and your biomarkers and your microbiome, Zoe, I'm a big fan of the work that Zoe does, identifying what's good gut bacteria and what's bad gut bacteria. In fact, you know, the way we look after our mouth with the bacteria in our mouth, everybody goes, oh, you know, rinse it all out, get rid of it. Well, yes, but you want good gut bacteria, good mouth bacteria in there. You don't want to flush it all out. So it is interesting learning how you can pull it all together, as you say, without getting over, over serious about it. But then if we if we could have this ability for all the different specialists to pool their resources, and they sometimes do in the NHS, my brother uh, for many years was the, uh, a, a very eminent surgeon, the past president of British plastic surgeons. And, and his best moments, he said, was when a whole team of specialists came together for one person, rather than having to go and see lots of different people. And they all came together and they consulted with the patient about their different perspectives. Cause you can get too siloed a bit like in Unilever, there's so many different elements of Unilever. It's a massive organization, just like working in PricewaterhouseCoopers or IBM, uh, when I worked there, or the British Army, and, and the danger is you're you're in your silos, and the different departments don't speak to each other. Any thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I think you have this German idea of Gestalt, so the whole, and really bringing things together. And I, I think that is, yeah, whether and you raise, I think, a very interesting analogy of organisational health and wholeness, and how organisations work together to make it work. I'm not a doctor, Jonathan, so I can't fully comment how much that's really like the human body, but it seems a sound uh, metaphor to me. Mm-hmm. No, it is. And, and I, I love the functional medicine uh, guys like Dr. Mark Hyman. He's, he does a very interesting podcast, American, about you know going upstream and looking at, okay, you've got all these different symptoms, but but upstream, what's going on that's leading to this, this range of different issues? Um, let's have a talk next about EQ. Uh, emotional and social intelligence. I find this is one of your great strengths and in the feedback that you've had and what others comment on in the marketing academy and elsewhere. Um, How do you listen well to others? Because that's one of the skills. So I wanted to thank you, actually, because when we first started working together, you gave me a few book recommendations and you mentioned a book, which I'm sure many of your listeners will will have come across before, but it's called The Promise That Changes Everything by Nancy Klein. I thought, well, what's this book? I won't interrupt you, 
That's the simple, simple promise that you make to yourself uh, or to the other person. Um, I found this so powerful. I think particularly also like we're one-on-one on a Zoom call now, right? So we don't have reference to all the usual small nonverbal cues that we might have if we were sat in the same room together. And therefore really promising the other person, I will not interrupt you. It's so powerful. And this has been a massive uh, game changer for me. It's just a little voice in the back of your head. And, um, you know, I think that probably helps us all use our ears and our mouth in the, in the ratio that God gave them to us. It's so, it's so true. And I, I've got another one. Oscar Trimboli is going to come on as a guest in a few weeks time. And his book was how to listen. And, uh, if you were to ask Oscar a question on listening, what would be the question you'd ask him about listening? And I'll, I'll feed it in when I have him as a guest, because he wanted to have some feedback from leaders like you. What's the question on listening? Yeah, so I, I, my question to him would be, how has he seen the impact of devices and phones and constant emails, social media, all of these kind of things, impacting people's ability to listen i'm guessing he has seen that and if so what does he recommend that individuals do about that yeah that's a good one yeah i'd love to hear the answer yeah and i i will too let's let's make sure i ask him that's a great one thank you for that chris um the next one something dear to your heart and also unilever and dove uh what i call cq cultural cognitive and cultural intelligence, diversity, equality, and inclusion, you know, getting on with people who are very different from you. And also perhaps would you touch on some of the the work that Unilever is doing in this space? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously mentioned, I work with a fantastically diverse team and um, I'm always just really curious actually to know about uh, other people, which is the the real foundation of this, uh, I think. But certainly in terms of the work that we've done with our brands, and this has enabled me to meet a lot of different people and understand more about uh, diversity and inclusion, um, was the Pride Partnership um, that we've done with Superdrug and the LGBTQI plus charity, which is a helpline charity called Switchboard. And we have, um, over the last number of years, raised funds for Switchboard, raised awareness for their charity. And what we do is we produce a range of products which are available just in Superdrug, but they carry the number of the Switchboard. And then we'd have in-store point of sales across all of the Superdrug stores, which also Superdrug, fantastic uh, team there and all their stores are safe spaces uh, as well for the LGBT community. And it's just one of those things which has run and run. So we're into six years of the campaign. And when we first started doing it, you know, it was, um, I'd say, very innovative. And now it's something that we're just also bought into uh, to to keep that going. and yeah, just been really fantastic as an ally to the community to be uh, involved in that. Well, thanks, Chris. And thanks for all that you're doing for uh, for people who 
for too long might have been persecuted or um, excluded or made to feel um, left out. I was reading my granddaughter, who's two, a bedtime story, which was about marmalade, a little panda by David uh, Walliams. And um, uh, turns to be not a black and white panda, but an orange and white panda. And so excluded from the, um, the, the group of pandas that they're in. And uh, eventually goes on this journey. And at the end of it, they're all coloring themselves in all sorts of different colors of the rainbow. Uh, but just accepting people as they are. And, and a message to go for a two-year-old that actually it's okay to be you and to be different from other people is very special. Um, resilience, you know, with all that you've had to do as you've gone throughout your career, there's been successes, there's been setbacks, disappointments, high expectations of what you should achieve, but yet impossible timelines and budget that's being cut back or things are overrunning. Um, what's your top tip to people listening about resilience that's worked for you, Chris? So... I can only speak to on this one, uh, Jonathan, all the help, love and support they get from Lizzie, my wife. And I think having that relationship that we first met when we were 14. So we've really known each other all our whole adult lives. And Lizzie is really my best friend, uh, my confidant, my supporter, advisor. And she's such a fantastic people person that when I go wrong typically actually it's maybe because I just can't see things right or I've misunderstood or how whatever it might be um but Lizzie's always been the person for me who picks me up and says right actually it's okay and we're going to look at it like this and I just think I don't know if that's really a tip but I think in terms of having um the backbone if you like of an amazing pipe partner life partner who helps you is 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 something that certainly I can be with her. Yeah, it, it's a great one. And uh, in um, this uh, last week's newsletter that I just uh, have done, and if anybody's listening and they enjoy listening to these podcasts and they want to um, um, know what the next podcast is and some thoughts about each of the speaker, um, just go to my website, jonathanperks.com, and you can sign up for the free newsletter. Um, all we ask in return is you just... Uh, share this with somebody else so somebody else gets the benefit. We, you and I are doing this for free. We we don't expect to raise any money for it, but um, we do want people to spread the word about what good leadership is about, what inspired leadership is about. Um, but um, I, I was just uh, recommending a book called Resilience by um, Eric Grechens, who was a, a, a Navy SEAL. And it, it's sort of letters that he's writing to a friend of his who was in the SEALs, who's now become quite an alcoholic and has hit difficult times. Uh, and there's quite a lot of sort of stoic philosophy. It's just a, a very sound book, uh, well worth reading. Um, an American SEAL who then goes to university at Oxford as well as a Rhodes Scholar, quite an unusual, quite unusual character. So that's uh, uh, one I recommend for you and for others. Um, brand, um, 360 feedback, which of course you've been having as part of the program with the marketing academy what have you what have you learned from your 360 well i've learned a lot but i wanted just to have a a, a word on brands first so as a as a marketeer of uh, 20 plus years um i've actually been really lucky to work on some exceptional brands as we've discussed 
Um, and brands can be purposeful, brands should be authentic, and they tend to be a really good, consistent thought held over time. Now, if you do something on a brand, and I can say this as a, as a marketeer, and you jar with the perception of that brand amongst its consumers and amongst the people that love it, it will falter pretty quickly. And we've talked a lot about love today, about Dove today, sorry. Um, that's 20 years next year of the same brand for a purpose, a completely consistent campaign and action plan. And one of the things in my, to come back to the 360 feedback is, this year, um, the feedback to me has been around that consistency. So if like me, I hope I'd show up as a relatively genial, convivial person. If I get grumpy or annoyed, then it, it really throws people off. And uh, it was actually Sherilyn uh, Sackle who uh, founded the Marketing Academy, who gave me the piece of feedback and said, don't do that, be consistent because as a leader, you will cast a long shadow, that's often said, but if you cast an inconsistent one, this is where you'll really become just very difficult to follow, ultimately. Mm. Yeah. So uh, just wanted to make that um, observation about brands and then also about how that's helped me a bit too. Yeah, lovely one. And um, it is so very interesting when we feel we have to put a mask on and be something which isn't us. And that was something when I, I mentioned to you the Hoffman Institute program that I did, and I interviewed Serena Gordon, the managing director of the Hoffman program. And uh, if people haven't listened to that podcast, have listened to Serena and the work that they do, which transforms lives. Uh, and in it, I recognized that, that I had been wearing various masks during my time becoming an army officer, working in PricewaterhouseCoopers, becoming a managing director, then becoming a coach to CEOs and boards, that at times I sort of was putting on what I thought I should have as the mask rather than just showing up as me. And I am finding now the more I show up as me, that by its very nature, you put boundaries in place. So some people are attracted to you, if in, in my case, CEOs who want to work with me. And in other case, some, they and I realize it's not a good fit. And, and I call that out much earlier now than I did before. And if I'm not good enough as I am, that's fine. I'm not the right fit for you. Let's find somebody who's a better fit for you. Um, and I, I do think that that whole thing about brand 360 it's important to be aware of your impact, just like the smelly goat in Marcus Aurelius's uh, story, so that there's some things that you can change, which are worth changing. I, I think it was Steve Jobs who thought he was a, um, uh, I think he called him a fruitarian or something, and he didn't need to shower because he ate fruit. Um, and so he didn't have a shower for about a month, and people were telling him eventually that he needed to shower, much as he thought he was not needing to, everyone else felt he did. Uh, so there's some things that I think we should listen. But then there's the other side, which if you worry what people think about, you'd be surprised how little they do. They're not really thinking about you. They think about themselves. Um, briefly, legacy. What would you like your legacy to be with your family and with your work? So I think with family, uh, very clear on on all the things I've talked about with my with my daughters and with my wife, Lizzie, and just making sure that 
in this crazily busy world, I find all that special time to spend with them. And that, as we were saying before, I make the most of it and don't, you know, get distracted by phones and other other silly things. Um, legacy at work, one thing that I've been working on professionally at the moment is um, very linked to the industry I work in, so beauty, personal care products, um, and that's on hygiene poverty. So uh, we work with a charity, a number of charities, but one of the charities we work in is called Inkind Direct. Uh, it was actually set up by King Charles when he was Prince of Wales, I think in the late 90s. And um, they found that almost half of low income households in the UK had to go without hygiene product, products because they, they'd become too expensive or they couldn't afford them. Um, and so we've partnered with a number of the sort of uh, leading retailers, charities to address this. We came up with a really simple mechanic, which is if somebody goes in one of their stores and buys two, we'll give one. And this in, so just to give you a, a sort of sense of numbers, in the first two iterations of this, with Inkind Direct, and we we partnered on that with Tesco, we've given away a million products donated, which then go to community centres, churches, town hall, all the rest of it, so that they can get out to the community. Um, and we are now scaling this, so we're actually forming an alliance with other FMCG suppliers, so that more range of stuff can be given, and we can unlock even more. And I'm really really been very passionate about that uh, and just a delight to work with a number of these charities and uh, saying kind direct in particular. No, very special thank you uh, to you Chris and, and to the team who came up with that. Um, talking about teams what about when you've had to turn around a team where it's not working well everybody can look at situations with high-performing teams, take a good team, just carry on with it. But but what about when it's just not gelling, that something's not going on? What have you done? Or if there's a, a brief tip that you'd give in the last few minutes, what would be your tip? So you've had this guest on before, but L. David Marquet's book, Turn the Ship Around, I think is one of the most powerful leadership books that I've read. And just a very simple idea of let people make the recommendation of what they're about to do and then let them assume that position, permission will be given rather than denied. And you can unlock huge amounts of time in this. And I genuinely think as a leader, what I always avoid is upward delegation of problems. Mm. Not that you want things to be suppressed or you don't want to know about things, but here's what I've seen. I'm not just admiring the problem and I've come to you, Chris, with what I intend to do about it today. Okay, that's great. Thank you. That's the way it should go. And I'm trying to transform this in organizations is hard, but also very rewarding, I think, if you can get it right. And I think that also stops a lot of toxicity because people feel more empowered to do the thing and actually to do their job, which they're perfectly skilled and, and capable in doing. Yeah, no, a lovely way of describing it. Thank you for that. Um, favorite book, and then we'll go into your introduction and two-minute top leadership tip. So what book would you recommend and why? So favorite leadership book, mm -hmm. uh, First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. I, I'm not sure when this was first published. I imagine it's quite a long time ago, but it's always in print. 
because uh, it's such a fantastic book and we all start new roles at different phases of our careers and someone gave me that book in 2008 and so helpful so it helps you really structure you know some quick wins you can have how you build your credibility how you assess the situation how you deal with the new boss and try to make that start in 90 days mm-hmm. it's also a great present so if you've got someone leaving your team to move on to new and fantastic things i've always found a little copy of that book has gone down well but first 90 days michael watkins thoroughly recommend it yeah i, I have enjoyed it but i will listen to it again Chris, thank you. Would you now um, introduce yourself, talk about the role you do and give us your two minute top leadership tip or two? Sure. So my name's Chris Barron. I'm the general manager of personal care at Unilever UK and Ireland. And my leadership top tip uh, is making it personal. So make it personal with your employees, with the people that you work with, with your leadership team. It's about remembering things about people's lives, about asking them how they are. So it's nothing rocket science, but just having this mantra, and we've worked on this really hard as a personal care team to say, make it personal, make it personal with consumers, employees, everyone we meet. I think it's really a fantastic uh, mantra. And if I may, Jonathan, I'm going to pop in a second top tip, which is wash your hands. Um, So obviously really a very uh, functional health one, but um, you need to wash your hands for longer than you think and more often than you do. And the reason is that when you wash your hands, it may take the dirt off the surface, but it also destroys the fatty layer of uh, of the virus. So it breaks down and it can't bind to your cells. So it provides you protection ongoing. And the last thing you absolutely don't, the last thing you want as a leader is, is colds and flu. And so I really think that thing of just trying to make sure you don't get them and washing your hands is absolutely the first thing to do. We can also, if we all washed our hands more, relieve some of the pressure on the NHS in the winter. So it has a, has a serious uh, point. Chris Barron, thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. And I know a lot of people will take a great deal from what you've said. I certainly have. And it continues to be a pleasure working with you, Chris. So thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Jonathan, for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.